You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Church, you may be seated and let me say good morning to you. My name is Mark Kirkendall. I'm one of the leaders here at the White House campus, uh, and it's always great to be here each and every week. And man, we had a great start to our very first uh, early service, I guess you could call that, at 9 o'clock. The great news, it was, it was more than the band and Clint and I. And so it was a win. It was great um, to be able to uh, provide that opportunity uh, for those. So they said good morning, and I'll relay that to them next week. But hey, we could all hang out Friday night, as Clint said, at the tailgate, and we hope that you'll do that. So this morning, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to kind of close up our series we've been calling Pursue. And this morning, I would want us to talk about, from the Scriptures, pursuing the right vision is how I would phrase it. Because think about how powerful our perceptions are. We do this, and we've had it kind of done to us, that we perceive people or situations or even things in certain ways. Sometimes we can be wrong. and Because what happens is our perception really becomes our reality. And if you've ever been involved in any type of uh, phrase of thing where, man, maybe you get really scared and... You know, most people, you might say, how in the world would you be scared about that? But that's our perception that, you know, something's going to climb out from underneath my bed and, and take me in the middle of the night. And, you know, or something's in my closet or whatever it might be, or this fear controls us. And then what happens is that our behaviors are based on what we believe to then be true. But we've also viewed people or situations and things in a way, and then we realize, wait, I was totally wrong, maybe about that person or situation or thing. And so, for instance, I'll start kind of this way about situations. There's a little boy I know, and he was uh, spent several years in foster care. And I can't imagine what that's like, uh, taken from family to family. And he was finally adopted and placed in his forever home. And the day came, they were excited. They were going to travel and see grandparents. And uh, they took the the clothes, they put them in the suitcases, and they were packing the car, and this young boy just cratered, began sobbing uncontrollably. They couldn't figure out what was wrong, that why wasn't he excited? They're getting to go see his new grandparents and cousins, and but you think about what that situation looked like from a little boy that was raised in foster care. Here he thought again, oh no, I'm being sent to another family, and how you can perceive situations from different ways. I'll never forget, my dad's a pastor. I've told you this before. I'll never forget having my world rocked one time when I heard my dad say that he was going to marry someone. In my mind, I'm having to figure out a whole new mom, and he doesn't like my mom anymore, but he was trying to say, I'm going to perform a wedding ceremony. So we see situations differently. My wife and I will never see shopping the same way. I'm always thinking, embracing myself for the, okay, just give me the bottom line. How much did we spend? And she's like, oh, no, no, no. Let me tell you how much we saved. And you see situations from different things. Think about things, how you look at objects and 
you know, we might see a cardboard box, but this is what our kids see. Endless opportunities or bubble wrap. You know, you give them something and it's just hours of fun. Or when your kids go and hide, you know, this is what you see, but this is what they think that you see. You're looking at situations and you're perceiving something to be true. But even people, and I had to confess this morning, so I told him I was going to tell this story. I remember a friend coming at Ross saying, hey, you need to go meet Mark Foley. We were at the South Campus, and I thought, no way. That's the scariest dude I've ever met. Have you seen him? I mean, he worked out with Lou Ferrigno growing up. And he'd look at I thought, there's no way. I mean, he may eat me. I, I don't know. I mean, or he's going to take and hug me and break me in pieces. I thought, I thought Mark was the scariest guy I think I'd ever met. Until I stood around a little kind of high pub table at the South Campus and spent a couple of minutes getting on. And I realized, wow, his heart's bigger than his arms. I mean, he's just got the kindest heart you'd ever meet. And my perception of him was totally wrong. You know, introverted people, us introverted ones, I know sometimes we might be seen as snobbish. Or you meet somebody that's like really, really confident, and you might judge them in a certain way. Oh, they never have any problems. They have everything together. When in fact, they might actually be very insecure about themselves. And we can perceive and judge people based only by what we see. I think more times than not, we're probably wrong. So this is where we find Paul this morning. If Paul has set up his life in a way to where he would be seen by other people, and this is what they would think about him. He was controlling his image. He belonged to the right group. He had the right education, the right amount of money displayed in the right ways. But secondly, Paul used this standard to then judge other people. And this is what you were held to in his eyes. But he comes to realize that he was totally wrong about himself and even other people. He was viewing them in the wrong way. He saw himself and those other people wrong. But then he comes to see himself. He comes to see others from very, very different eyes. So this morning, I want us to see how Paul saw people, but then what was it that changed his life, that gave him new eyes. So you're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 11, but remember this. So it's about 56 AD. Paul's in Macedonia, and he's writing these letters to the churches in Corinth. The second one we have is actually his fourth letter, and people are trying to discredit who Paul is. They're trying to get people to disbelieve and not follow the teachings of this man, Jesus, to abandon that and to come back to the law. So people were trying to see Paul and paint the gospel in a different light. So we pick up in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, verse 11. He says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others by what, what we are is known to God, and we hope is also known, or we become known to you. And so he uses this phrase, fear of the Lord. This is one of his motivators. It's what motivates Paul to live in a certain way. It's only used twice in the entire New Testament, both by Paul, once here and once in Acts chapter 9. 
So what does he mean when he says, what is he referring to, this fear of the Lord? Well, if you go back and read verses 1 through 10, it's just like Adam was describing to us. It's a time where Jesus will come back. And that is what Paul is thinking about. It's the reality of one day meeting Jesus, his Savior. But Paul's not terrified. He's not afraid. This word means that he is in awe. He's in awe of the thought of standing before a being so holy, so morally perfect, so removed from evil that in his presence, all human boasting and all pride and arrogance will simply vanish. Paul knows he's going to stand there probably speechless, humbly bow, trying to get the words out about giving an account for himself. And so because of this all, he, he wants to persuade other people to see things the way he is now seeing them. So then we get some insight into kind of what's going on in these churches in verse 12. He says, we're not commending ourselves, and he's talking to it's, it's him and Timothy. We're, we're not commending ourselves to you again, meaning we're not trying to pat ourselves on the back. We're not trying to build ourselves up but giving you cause to boast about us. And when I read that, I'm thinking, hold on. How many times does Paul say, don't boast? If you're going to boast in anything, boast in the cross, boast in the hope of Jesus Christ. But here he says, we want to give you cause to boast about us. So that means there has to be a right way and a wrong way, a right thing and a a wrong thing to boast in. And Paul gives us both of them. And this is where he's saying, be careful. If you're going to boast, make sure it's in the right way. And he says, so that you may be able to answer those who boast. And here's the eyesight about outward appearance by the flesh and not by what is in the heart. So Paul is saying that there are some who are only looking at the outward appearance. And they're creating these perceptions and they are judging based only by what they see or they perceive to be true. And they miss what's most important. Because let's be honest, if anyone could boast, it really should have been Paul. In fact, you could turn to chapter 12. Paul gets called up into the third heaven and he gets told things that no one else gets to hear. And God says, shh, don't tell anybody. I mean, Paul's the one in 1 Corinthians 14. This is what he says about himself. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But then he quickly dismisses it. He says, but I would rather speak five words in my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. But Paul says, Do not look at what you naturally see. Don't be confused. Don't be misled. Don't look at the outward achievements. He wants us to see what Christ has done in his life. So Paul knows that people have made these perceptions about him, and many are even judging him. In verse 13, he says this. He's going to paint the picture of what's happening. He says, if we are beside ourselves, meaning if we seem crazy insane, it's for God. If we seem out of our minds, it's because of him. Because Paul was okay with people thinking that about him because he said, God knows my heart. 
And people are trying to discredit Paul. But they didn't have to look very far. All they had to do to show that Paul was crazy, out of his mind, was to look at his own life. Because think about his life. Who else except a crazy person would be willing to face a crazy mob intent on killing him that you can read about in Acts 19 and 21? Or why would any sane person, after being drugged outside of town in Acts 14 and stoned, they throw rocks till you stop moving, they think you're dead. Why would you walk back into town? And that's exactly what Paul does. Many thought Paul was out of his mind. But there's another side to Paul. In fact, those of Corinth knew him. It says, if we, me and Timothy, are in our right mind, it's for you. If we seem normal or we see, seem sane, that's for you. Because they knew Paul as that passionate Bible teacher. They knew him as that neighbor that loved those around him. They knew him as this loving father and teacher that would help anyone in need. The one that wanted to see everyone come together. So Paul says, listen, he doesn't care what other people think of him. He's come to the place that the only opinion of him that matters is his Lord's. And that's the only thing that matters to him. So what would lead Paul to live this kind of life? It's so radical and but at the same time, so focused and selfless, he lays it out in 14. He says, this is why I live the way I do. This is how I live the way I do. For the love of Christ controls us. Meaning Jesus and what he had done for Paul, he said, that is what now controls me. When Paul saw Jesus correctly, his life was never the same. Paul discovered that you can live your life a lot of different ways, but the only way for your life to really matter is for it to be controlled by the love of Christ. And anything else, he says, will end in disaster, even when it seems like a good thing. So think about the things that we can live that try to control us, or we allow to control us. We can allow ourselves, Mark, to control me. That I live my life and I'm controlled by my greatest desire is I just want to improve. I, I need a better version of Mark. And if that's the focus, then life only becomes about me. And listen, there are hundreds of books that you can go check out, you can go buy, even written by people that claim to be Christians that will help you get a better improved version of yourself. But if that's what controls me. It's about me getting to a certain place or me becoming this certain thing. Then people become a means to an end. And I quickly use the relationships that God has given me as leverage and real relationships cannot last. Because it comes about me trying to get to a better place. Or what about others that we use and allow to control us? It could be your spouse, a group of friends, even our own children. When our lives are controlled by what other people think. What happens is, when that happens, then we are controlled by needing to be ultimately accepted and loved. To constantly be, you know, cheered on. And we need someone else to give us their uttermost 
affections. And these create all kinds of wreckage. Let me tell you about Marla for a minute. Man, she's a wonderful wife and a wonderful mother. In fact, she'll tell you that's all I've ever wanted to be, a wife and a mother. And she takes it very seriously. She makes sure our home is comfortable and safe. She, every morning, wants to make sure we start off some time in God's Word before we kind of head out into the world, so to speak. Man, she's a good listener. She's an encourager. She invests in so many people. She makes room in her lives for others. But do you want to know what she stinks at? I didn't ask her permission to tell you this. She stinks. I mean, she, she doesn't stink. She's really bad at this. She's really awful at being God. In fact, she makes a crummy God. You know who else makes a really bad God? My kids. They make terrible gods. You make terrible gods in my life. The title that I might hold a position in a church, it makes a terrible God. Because if my life is controlled by the affections of others, it says other people are going to satisfy me. Other people and what they do, they become my ultimate source of joy and happiness. And think of the weight that that puts on people. They can't live underneath that. When I'm looking for them for what only God can give me, they will never survive and it creates a wreckage in relationships. What about controlled by the world? We can get this mindset that that what matters is we have to have this or that, and we will sacrifice to maintain or to obtain a certain lifestyle. Well, here's another one that I've thought about, and it's real sneaky, because it seems like a great thing, but it can quickly control us in the wrong way. And it's this idea of Just outward morality. Living under the controlling factor that says outside or outward behavior is what really matters. We try to put up a good front so that people will view us in a certain way and we get controlled by trying to maintain that image. Also, when this outward morality controls us, we easily become judgmental. Because what happens is we compare people and then we judge them based on who doesn't measure up. And all of a sudden there is no grace in that for anyone. So outward behavior, it can be totally misleading. When in fact Paul just said, hey, be careful. Don't judge by only what you can see. But being controlled by the love of Christ, it totally changed Paul. And it changed the way he saw himself and others. And he goes on to tell you why. He says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. And Paul admits his own sin here. He says, listen, I was wrong that I was judging people only by what I could see. He judged people by the group of friends, 
jobs, their social status, their public engagements, the things they were invited to, the things they weren't, their letters of accommodation, their education. But he says, now I see people differently. He sees everyone as someone that Christ died for. Not just the successful or the beautiful or the ones whose children are always well-behaved or the ones that run with the right people. He says, no, I see everyone as someone who Christ died for. In fact, he says, Christ did not come just to die for the good people. He came to die for all. But there's someone else, do you see it? Someone else that Paul judged wrongly. He was wrong about other people. He even says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, by what we could see, but we regard him thus no longer. He even says, listen, I was wrong about Jesus because Paul knew Jesus. He knew of him. But Paul, he was unimpressed with Jesus. When he held this man up named Jesus according to everything that he valued, man, he was not impressed. Jesus came from this unknown family south of Jerusalem, grew up in this town of Nazareth that no one good came out of. He wasn't educated like Paul. His parents didn't have the money to send him to the right school. He didn't have the letters of recommendation that he did. And he didn't even have a home. He was always at the mercy of someone else to help him out. In fact, he didn't even have a place of honor among the community. So Paul was unimpressed by this man Jesus. In fact, Paul just looked at him as a messianic pretender. In fact, when Jesus was condemned by the Sanhedrin that Paul supported and was a part of and crucified by the Romans, you know what Paul thought? Man, he's getting exactly what he deserved. But then Acts 9 happened. As Paul's traveling on the Damascus Road, rounding up Christians to throw them in prison or worse, Jesus shows up. Christ pursued Paul. In fact, he sees that Christ proved his love for the world when he went to the cross. And Paul realizes, wait, that included me. That he needed saving. So not only was Paul saved, he was given new eyes. Paul was wrong about everyone. He was wrong about himself. He was wrong about other people. He was even wrong about Jesus. But he says, now, now I see with brand new eyes. Because think about what happened with Paul. When he meets Jesus, it says that his eyes were covered in scales. So when the truth comes to him, it's like Paul was given a complete new set of eyes. And so I was watching this this weekend. So I just began Googling people that were given the ability to see through modern technology and modern medicine and watching the reactions on their face that they would see their wife or their children or color for the very first time. And Paul is seeing the world that way. He's seeing people that way. When we see what Christ has done for us, we are controlled by that love. And what happens is you see the world differently. You see people differently. So Paul shows us how we're to see other people. In verse 17, he says, this is how. If anyone 
is in Christ. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And every time I've ever heard this verse preached or, or quoted, it's always been, that's how I need to view myself. Oh, I'm a new creation. And that is true. But Paul's viewpoint says that is how you are to see other people. Oh, that person that's getting on my nerves, that person that can't do anything right, that person that doesn't belong to run in the circles I do, or that person that keeps doing this or that. No, no, no. If they're in Christ, they are a new creation. We're no longer to see people based on just what we can outwardly see or their social or their economic status or their education or by some title that they might hold. We need to view people with potential and possibility. We need to view people as those whom Christ died because Jesus loves them. And when he died for all, you know what he does? He puts a high value on every person by his life. But think about how easily we see people wrongly. We're impatient with the way they do something. We get frustrated because we think they should know what we know. We look down on them because they don't have their lives together like we do or someone else does. Or their children don't behave like others. So we need to see others the way Christ does. And we need to see that Christ loves them just as much as he does me. So when you meet Jesus, you see people differently. And so these last four verses, what he's going to do, he's going to summarize all of this for us and then show us, okay, this is how you live it. So first of all, he says, all this that has happened, it's from God. The change that happened in me, the way I can see the world, it's not my doing. It was all God. That who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So our relationship with God through Christ, you realize it doesn't begin like most relationships. I didn't know Mark. What happens is you go up, you meet him, kind of on neutral ground. You spend some time together. You get to know a little bit about him. You share maybe a meal, whatever it might be, a cup of coffee. And all of a sudden, oh, we're now friends. But our relationship with God doesn't begin that way. You know how you show up to that relationship? You show up as an enemy. You show up as someone that is alienated, completely separated from God. That's how your relationship begins. So a relationship has to start with one word, and Paul uses it five times, reconciliation. You know what that word means? It means exchange. It means there is this transaction, this exchange that happens. And he tells us what it is in verse 18. That is, in Christ, he was reconciling, exchanging something here, the world to himself, that that's what it takes, not counting their trespasses against him. And that's the first half of the exchange. Reconciliation is having your sins exchanged for something else. That Jesus takes your sin, your rebellion, your selfishness, your anger, your entitlement, your impatience, your sin, and he doesn't even count them against you. And there's only one way that's made possible, and you'll read it in verse 21. 
He says, with entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled. And here it is. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That reconciliation is how it begins. And it's having your sins exchanged for something else. That God takes our sins, our rebellion, and he places the full weight and the punishment upon his very son. Our sins get focused on him. It's like when you're a little kid and you take that magnifying glass. You go out into the sun and, you know, you get that beam concentrated through that, you know, and you would put it on a leaf and catching it on fire. Or if you're a little boy, you tried to burn ants or something like that. And that's what it is, that all of that sin and rebellion gets focused on his son. And he suffers the wrath for that, the punishment. And Jesus became the enemy of God for us. Jesus became alienated from his father for us. And as he hung on that cross, wave after wave after wave of our sin was poured upon his sinless soul. During those three hours, his soul hung on that cross. He recoiled and convulsed as the lies and the hatred and the jealousies and the pride was poured upon his purity. And that was half of the exchange. But notice what you receive. Not only does he bear the cost and the weight of our sin, he turns around and exchanges that for his own righteousness. Meaning that every perfect and good thing Christ did, you and I get to take credit for it. So that's how our relationship with God begins. It's by this great exchange. And then that message is entrusted to us. Look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors. We stand and speak on his behalf, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, and here's the message, be reconciled to God. We are first reconciled to God, and then we're included in this ministry of taking the message to those around us and living that truth among all our relationships. But notice this. We are not told to go and make peace with God. No, that's God's work. So what is the plea? It's not go and reconcile yourself to God. The plea is simply be reconciled. Meaning, receive the reconciliation that God provides. So the gospel It isn't good advice about, hey, go and do so that you can be reconciled. It's good news. It's a message to believe. And that will then totally change the way you see the world. So here's the gospel invitation this morning. Are you reconciled to God this morning? Or are you still living alienated and separated from Him? Man, we would pray that you would receive that reconciliation this morning. You would hear the call, be reconciled. And what you do, you fall at the mercy of God. You ask Him to forgive you of your sins and to give you that perfect righteousness of Christ. And then when you are reconciled, 
that great exchange kind of happens, you're given new eyes. Because one of the reasons Christ endured the cross is so that we could see differently. We could see rightly. So here's the truth today. Reconciliation creates new eyes. And if you have received God's reconciliation, I think here's what we do each and every day. We ask ourselves or we ask God, God, would you help me to see rightly? And I want to tell you how I was ultimately convicted by this this past week. Kylie was getting her driver's license and Mike Cossel told me about a guy in Kilgore named Mr. D. Made an appointment, I went over and it was all focused. The goal is to get the driver's license. Met Mr. D, paid my $40, signed the paper, get her in the car, pass the test, give me the paper, we're on to the next thing. And he was a means to an end. But one of my best friends, I told him about Mr. D. He went a few days later, called me and said, hey, let me tell you about Mr. D. He took just a, a moment to get to know him. Found out Mr. D is going through a divorce. Mike simply asked, what do you think God's doing through that? He said, man, he looked up and he said, I, I've been trying to journal about that and I have no idea. Would you meet with me and help me figure it out? Mike saw him rightly. I was only looking at what I could see through the flesh of my eyes, and he was a means to an end. But Mike saw him as Christ would. So I think that's what we do each and every day. Lord, help me to have eyes to see rightly. Driving the kids to school. God, help me to have eyes to see them the way you do. Walking into that meeting, Lord, this situation, give me eyes to see it the correct way and the people the correct way. What about that stressful walk from the time you get out of your car to the time you enter the house? You're tired, you're exhausted. Lord, give me eyes to see my family as you do. That classroom full of kids that you'll have in just a few hours. That person that's frustrating or irritating constantly. Lord, give me eyes to see them like you do. What about people around us that are suffering? And we can easily just, oh yeah, I'll pray for you. But we don't really stop and try to relate to them. Lord, give me eyes to see them. Or the people this next week we might be waiting with. In that beloved DMV office or that doctor's office. Lord, give me eyes to see them. Give me eyes to see the way you do. Because reconciliation creates new eyes. So I'd love for us to ask and pray that God would help us to have the power to do that this week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.